Hi, this is Oren. If you find these teachings useful and you'd like to learn more about my work, you can visit me online at orenjsofer.com or on social media at orenjsofer. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to support Oren's work, you can donate at orenjsofer.com forward slash support. So as our, our week draws to a close here, the inevitable and natural question is, how do we take this home? How do we bring this to our life? How do we apply the insights and the learning and keep this practice going so it doesn't just become a memory? You know, some nice experience or not so nice experience <laughs> that we had. You know, oh yeah, I did one of those retreats. You know, just done, check. So I want to talk tonight about one of the single most important and primary factors in keeping this practice going, in deepening our understanding of the Dhamma, and in really developing and growing on this path. I'm going to start by just telling you a short story of um, a moment in my life that at the time didn't seem like much, but when I look back, I can see was an important beginning that's led me here today, sitting with all of you. Um, I was wound pretty tight when I was younger. Yeah. If you, if you think I'm a little bit tight now, you should have known me when I was a teenager. I was, I was kind of a nutcase. I'm Jewish, so it's in my genes. We think people are always trying to kill us. For good reason. So, but seriously, a lot of anxiety. A lot of anxiety. And um, in high school, I had a falling out with some friends. Very painful, as, as can happen, you know, with, with teenagers. And I was fortunate to connect with uh, another, a few guys who were a little bit older than I was. And um, we went to, uh, to a rock concert, actually out here in Amherst at UMass, the, uh, the big arena there. It was in April. And um, this was kind of the first time that I, you know, left home with friends for like, you know, more than a night. So it was very exciting for me, and they were a year or two older. And um, the weather was really strange that day. It paled in April. And we're all waiting to go into this arena, and the hail clears, and the sun comes out. It's beautiful, sunny, you know, warm sun after this hail. And I looked over, and one of the guys uh, who I was with, who I looked up to a lot, I saw him, and he just turned to the sun. His eyes were closed. It was just... And something inside of me slowed down. Something inside of me went, 
that makes a lot of sense. And I closed my eyes and turned and just felt the sun. There was a learning there. There was some kind of wordless understanding that happened just by being around him. So this single most important and primary thing that's a factor in really deepening in the path and keeping it going is taking care with the company we keep. So this word metta, this practice that we've been doing, is connected to the word mitta, which means friend. So to really truly understand kindness, loving kindness, is to understand friendship, what it means to be a good friend. Just like in English, the word kindness shares a root with the word kin. There's that sense of connection. And the Buddha repeatedly stressed the value, the central importance of friendship in life and on the path. So there's a very famous passage that many of you may have heard before where the Buddha's attendant, who is his cousin, was spending time with him and they were hanging around the Sangha of monastics. And Ananda turned to the Buddha and says, Blessed one, it seems to me that half of this spiritual life is good friendship, good companionship, having good comrades. The Buddha turned to Ananda and says, Do not say so, Ananda. Do not say so. This is the entire spiritual life. Good friendship, good companionship, having good comrades. When a practitioner has a good friend, a good companion, a good comrade, it's to be expected that they will develop and cultivate the Eightfold Noble Path. I want to talk about what this means. What does it mean to say that good friendship, having good companions, is the whole path, the whole life of spiritual and contemplative development? I want to talk about what the Buddha meant by this term, good friendship. The word in Pali is kalyana mitta. Its benefits and some other ways of understanding how we can bring this kind of friendship and connection into our life. So in many, many places in the text, there's this emphasis on the phrases not associating with fools and associating with the wise. There's one sutta called the Mangala Sutta, which is a series of all of the wonderful blessings we can experience in life. And it begins, the very first thing the Buddha points to is saying, taking care with the company you keep, not spending time with foolish people and trying to spend time with the wise. And the rest unfolds from there. Our progress on the path really hinges on making good choices in terms of the company we keep. And this is because our minds aren't fixed. So there was a period of time in neuroscience and psychology where the theory and the thinking was our personality is fixed and even the number of kind of the, the number of neurons in the brain and the patterning and the way it works is fixed and it couldn't change. You lose brain cells and that's it. You can never get more. And we understand now that that's not the case. As the Buddha understood 2,600 years ago, our minds are malleable. They remold and reshape themselves continually based on the context. 
It's like you can think of your mind like a really fertile patch of ground with all kinds of seeds in it. That ground is so fertile, whatever you plant is going to grow. And what we plant is what we put in, what we put into our consciousness. The people we spend time with, the places we go, the activities we engage with, the kind of media we consume. It's like putting that into that fertile soil, and the mind then takes on that shape. Here's another passage from from the Buddha. With regard to external factors, I don't see any other single thing like friendship with wise people as doing so much for someone in training who hasn't yet attained the goal but remains intent on the unsurpassed safety from suffering. One who is friends with wise people abandons what is unskillful and develops what is skillful. The people we spend time with rub off on us, the company we keep, because our minds are so so malleable and impressionable. Here's another beautiful passage. Practitioners, monks, nuns, just as the dawn is the forerunner and precursor of the rising sun. So too, this is the forerunner and the precursor for the arising of the Noble Eightfold Path. That is good friendship. When one has a good friend, it is to be expected that they will develop and cultivate this Noble Eightfold Path. I find that so beautiful. Like the dawn before the rising sun, having a good friend is the precursor to developing this whole path. And just think about it. As Sharon invited us to reflect on almost a week ago now, what's brought you here? How is it that we come to be in this room tonight? I'm willing to bet there was someone along the way That was that dawn rising. Even if it wasn't embodied, a book, a podcast. For me, it was that friend who closed his eyes and turned to look at the sun. And something inside of me slowed down and understood. So what did the Buddha mean by this good friendship, good companionship, Kalyanamitta? I think it's important just to start with the basic recognition that social connection is healthy for us as human beings. It's just, it's rooted in our biology. You know, we come into this world through thousands of years of evolution expecting to enter a world of safety, where we have a sense of place and belonging where we know the people around us and they know one another, where we have a sense of shared meaning and purpose, certain life rituals. This is how humans have lived for millennia. It's only very recently in history that we have become disconnected 
from what our, uh, our cells are expecting and longing for, to be embedded in a community. There's something that's known as Dunbar's number. It's a certain number of people that the, the, of social connections that the brain can keep track of. It's somewhere around 125. That's the size of like a village where you know everyone. You know their role. You know how you're connected to them. There's a strong argument that the extraordinary levels of depression and anxiety and loneliness and alienation that, that plague modern society is due to the breakdown of community, that we don't have these kinds of connections that we're expecting and longing for. They've done some very interesting research on friendship and social connection. Uh, One meta-analysis that combined data on more than 300,000 people showed that there was a really strong connection between social relationships and lifespan. And the size of the effect was greater than uh, health-related behaviors, than than the effect of um, health-related behaviors like smoking or not smoking and exercise. Another another analysis on more than 3.4 million people across 70 different studies showed that the absence of social connection carried the same health risk as smoking up to 15 cigarettes a day. Loneliness led to worse outcomes than obesity, and that this was true for people of all ages. So and they, they've looked at it and, and, and discovered that friendship can give us a sense of belonging and purpose, can boost our happiness, reduce stress, improve our sense of self-confidence and self-worth. It can help us to cope with challenges. You know, the inevitable difficulties that we face in life, illness, losing a job or a loved one, divorce. These things provide, are easier to go through when we have community. And in the Jewish tradition, you know, when, when someone close to you dies, you sit shiva and everyone comes over and spends time with you. So you don't have to go through that alone. They've even found that if a friend of ours is happy, we're more likely to be happy. And that one person's happiness spreads through their social group even up to three degrees of separation. So even if you don't know them immediately within that, within that group. So the company that we keep has an effect just even on our physical well-being, our psychological well-being. Let a, you know, not even looking at the path or spiritual development. This is from Mother Teresa. There's much suffering in the world, very much. Material suffering, there is suffering from hunger, from homelessness, from all kinds of disease. But I still think that the greatest suffering is being lonely, feeling unloved, just having no one. I have come more and more to realize that it is being unwanted, that is the worst disease that any human being can ever experience. And so this practice of loving kindness, of cultivating the quality 
of care, of friendship, of friendliness in the heart, of healing this disease of separation, isolation. One of the reasons why this, this translation of metta as connection is so powerful, this deep yearning inside us to know that, that we have one another in this life, that there's someone there for us. So taking care with the company we keep. The Buddha pointed to uh, um, the dangers of, of associating with fools. He talked about the ways that we can lose, um, lose wealth or get into trouble. He points to four different things. He says excessive drinking, excessive gambling, having too much sex, and having association with the wrong kinds of people can take us down a path that creates more challenges, difficulty, and suffering in our lives. So in the context of spiritual development, we're building on this biological foundation of social connection, but it's more than just having someone whose company we enjoy or somebody who we have shared interests with. That's wonderful. It's essential. And in terms of the path, it's, it's developing relationships with people who possess certain qualities. In one place, the Buddha talks about a wise friend as someone who has, who's established in a sense of confidence in that which is good in life, Confidence in the Dharma or confidence in the possibility of, of developing the heart. Someone who's established in virtue and ethics, that they have a sense of integrity. Someone who's generous, who gives. And someone who has wisdom. Someone with discernment. So spending time with someone who has these qualities of confidence, integrity, generosity, and discernment and then emulating those qualities, learning from them, allowing that to shape us. It's another beautiful passage where the Buddha describes the qualities of a good friend, of a true friend. A friend endowed with seven qualities is worth spending time with. Which seven? They give what's hard to give. They do what's hard to do. They endure that which is hard to endure. They reveal their secrets to you. They keep your secrets. When misfortunes strike, they don't abandon you. When you're down and out, they don't look down on you. A friend endowed with these seven qualities is worth associating with. And so this goes both ways, right? looking for someone who has some of these qualities, and then also reflecting and seeing how can we begin to embody those qualities? How can we become a good friend to others? And it's not easy. Having friends isn't always easy. It's hard to be a good friend. Some of the most painful losses that we experience in life are the ending of friendships, particularly when it's not mutual. You know, we feel cut off. We moved when I was 10, and uh, 
I had a really tight group of friends when I was young. Was three or four of us used to play all the time. And uh, I wrote them long letters when we moved. And they didn't write back. <laughs> I didn't understand why, but looking back, like they were 10 years old. <laughs> you know? But at the time, I was devastated. I was like, how come Dayton's not writing back? How come Russell's not writing back? You know? I have another good friend from high school. We're very close now. But um, he lost his father when he was quite young. He found his father. father passed away and he discovered him, discovered his body. Really difficult. And so he's worked for his whole life um, struggling to be close to people. So when we were in college... Uh, he wouldn't return my phone calls. But I really loved the guy. And so I didn't take it personally. I would just still keep calling every now and then. Hey, man, how's it going? You know, I'd love to hang out, love to catch up. Wrote him letters. <laughs> There's an art to friendship. These days we just send emails and text messages. Ever gotten a letter in the mail? Card? Right? It's so meaningful. Someone took the time to write. You know? Having a friend takes time. This is, um, this is from uh, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, who wrote The Little Prince. This is from a different book of his called Wind, Sand, and Stars. He says, Old friends cannot be created out of hand. Nothing can match the treasure of common memories, of trials endured together, of quarrel and reconciliations and generous emotions. It is idle, having planted an acorn in the morning, to expect that afternoon to sit in the shade of an oak. It takes time to have a friend, build a relationship, there came a time in this relationship with this buddy from high school when uh, he thanked me through tears. He said, you know, you're, you're a really good friend, or thank you. I haven't been a good friend to you, but I'm going to try harder. Thank you for not giving up on me. And we let each other down, you know. We make mistakes. We fall short of our expectations. And when we can hang in there, when we can stick through it, we come out the other side stronger. The bond deepens. To just be in the mess of life together. To not need it to be tidy and perfect and, you know, which seven qualities of friends and you're supposed to, my misfortune strike, you're not supposed to abandon me, you know. You know, you told my secret. Well, we make mistakes, you know. Something slips. It's not about being perfect. It's about when we, when we break trust, can we reestablish it? Do we have the humility, the magnani- magna- magnanimity, the willingness to work together? And if we've been hurt, and we've all been hurt, sometimes it can feel easier to just isolate, you know, to just cut off. 
rather than open ourselves up to the possibility of being hurt again. And then what's that like? You know, when we cut, and we cut, and we cut, and we cut. The world gets real small. It's very narrow. And so we have these practices of loving kindness and compassion and forgiveness to soothe the heart, to heal the heart. One of my favorite quotes from His Holiness the Dalai Lama on metta, he points out, he says, if we were aware that we all contain love within us and that we can foster and develop it, we would certainly give it far more attention than we do. And this is what we're doing in this practice, giving it far more attention than we normally do, developing this quality of kindness, of kinship, of friendship in the heart. So the company we keep, taking care with the company we keep. And there are other challenges. You know, we move around a lot. It's hard to meet people. So much of our life these days is on screens. You know, how many Facebook friends do you have? And how many people can you call when, we're, when, we, when we feel lonely? You know, a real friend is someone that you can hug. Someone you can sit and have tea with. It's not someone that you like, you know, how many likes did you get online? That, uh, that good friend of mine I was talking about from high school, my, my, my buddy, he was just down uh, in Florida with his wife. Uh, he took a short vacation. He sent me a photo from the place they were staying, and there's this painted sign that says, we do not have Wi-Fi. Talk to each other. Pretend it's 1995. (laughs) Brenda knows that place. Friends are there for us when things get hard. You know, when the chips are down. A friend is someone who stands by our side, who shows up for us. There's another beautiful saying that I came across. I don't know the source. It says, a friend is someone who knows your song and can sing it back to you when you've forgotten. They reflect the best in us and bring that out. Remind us of our goodness. So Mark was speaking last night about staying engaged and uh, working to address the grave challenges and ills we're facing as a society and on the planet. And this piece of advice that he got from Joanna Macy, a wonderful elder in our tradition, who said, stay engaged and don't do it alone. Right? We depend on each other in those challenging times. They did some studies on... um, People who engage in civil disobedience in various um, circumstances, the civil rights movements, um, 
other protests where uh, physical harm was at risk, not just standing with a sign, but you know, having hoses, dogs getting beaten was a real potential. And to see, you know, what what are the what were the factors that were influencing people's willingness to show up, to put their life, their body on the line. What they found was it wasn't the most important decisive factor wasn't the political views, socioeconomic status, religion, race, the strength of their ideas, but those who had strong personal connections to others who were directly involved. If you knew someone and had a a friendship with someone else who was on the front line, with someone else who was being affected, that was the decisive factor. To say, I'm going to put my body out there. I'm going to march. I'm going to show up. That's the power of friendship. When we love, we're willing to take those risks, to support one another. The question came up this morning around doing metta practice and noticing unconscious racism, the ways that our minds have been infected by our society, by the media, how we've been conditioned to view one another based on our physical attributes, whether it's, in, the, in that case, it was race, whether it's gender. I was talking with one person in the interviews today, seeing you know, a, a man seeing the objectification of women in the mind. And how do I work with that? You know, these forces, these ways we get conditioned. And yes, the tools of mindfulness and loving kindness and compassion are important. And to do that work in community to do that work with one another, to recognize the difference in our lived experiences depending on what side of the spectrum we're on in that dynamic of oppression. And we all occupy different positions in life. To see that the kind of suffering that we experience, the impact, for example, that racism has on us, that it differs, right, based on where we are in those relationships in society. And how important it is, how, I know for myself how important it's, it's been to be able to talk to other white-skinned people about my own experiences as a white man in this society. That there's some of the work that I've done and will continue to do that I can't do alone, you know? And so whatever the, whatever the context is that we're working in, in terms of the various identities and roles that we occupy in our society, to seek out community and friendship, to, to heal, to mourn the, the impact that these, these structures and the histories have on our bodies, on our hearts, on our minds. To really learn what it is to be an ally. You know, 
That can only be done in community with, with friends, with one another. And the humility that it takes, you know, the humility that it takes to recognize our mistakes when we say something and realize, oh, that was not helpful. You know, that was hurtful. I'm sorry. Or if someone else says something, to be able to have the courage to stand up and say, hey, you know, um, that's not cool. I don't feel comfortable with that. To not always have the, the, the person who's on the receiving end of a racist or homophobic or sexist remark be the one who needs to stand up. And, and the, courage, the, the courage to do that, I know for me in my own life and uh, the people that I know, that it comes from having strong relationships, feeling a sense of community, that we're a part of something greater than, our, than ourselves. So I want to talk about some of the other ways that the company that we keep supports us on the path. We talked about just kind of the psychological and social benefits, um, that sense of inspiration, being there in hard times, uh, supporting us to live in line with our values. A friend, Kalyanamita, as the Buddha talked about, is also a guide someone who we can emulate, somebody whose who's very demeanor, whose way of being can be a teaching and an example for us in our life. Someone that we can turn to for guidance or counsel. I spent some time in, uh, in Japan in my 20s uh, working, and uh, I did a short session at a monastery out in the country. And the, uh, the teacher, uh, we called him Hojo-san, which wasn't his name, that was kind of his title, the role that, that he uh, held in the monastery. Uh, very sweet man. Uh, didn't speak too much English, but enough to give us basic instructions in Zazen. And uh, I had a particular role in this group as part of my work. And so I had certain duties in, on the retreat and one of the duties was blowing out the candles on the altar. And in this zendo, they had these big, kind of thick wax candles that they would burn. And on the altar was this beautiful wooden uh, statue of a Manjustri riding on a lion, carved sandalwood statue, and these big candles. And in the Zen tradition, you're not supposed to use your breath to blow out a candle. You're supposed to use your hand. You cup your hand. And you go like this very quickly to make a puff of air to blow out the candle. A little tricky to do. (laughs) He showed me how to do it, and he could do it fine. So end of the night, I'm supposed to blow out the candles. So, you know, big, thick wax candle, beautiful, wooden, carved, lion, man, juice. You see what's coming, right? Boom! Knock over the candle. Wax goes everywhere. Oh, my God on the statue, on the altar, on the floor. So I go, <laughs> I find Hojo-san, and you know, Hojo-san, I'm so sorry. 
I was trying to blow out the candle and I knocked the candle over and wax went everywhere. He kind of just listens and nods. He says, oh, that's okay. We all make mistakes sometimes. It's very easy to clean. Come, I'll show you. This is a wise friend. This is what the Buddha was talking about. So we learn forgiveness, kindness, generosity, just from someone else's way of being. You know, It was such an important lesson for me. A friend is also someone who can give us feedback in a loving way, who can show us you know, maybe where we're falling short of our values or expectations or where we've done something that was harmful, that we didn't intend, but that we don't see. Someone who can point that out to us. Again, the Buddha pointed to friendship as one of the two most important causes for the arising of right view. It's the external cause for right view. The internal cause is careful attention, deep attention, looking closely at our experience. And the external cause is the voice of another, someone pointing out to us the things we don't see because we can't see our own blind spots by definition. So we need one another to hold up the mirror and go, You know, take a look. And with that spirit of saying, you know you have a friend when they point out if you've got something in your teeth, right? That's the kind of friend that just says, hey, you might want to look at this. Other people can see it, and it's, I I think you would want to know. Having a good friend like this doesn't mean that we need to be perfect. It doesn't mean that we need to, you know, be a fully enlightened being. There's another very beautiful passage in the texts where the Buddha uh, drives home the importance of the company we keep. It's a little bit long. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but you'll get the gist of it. I say practitioners, that true knowledge and liberation has nutriment. They are not without nutriment. What is the nutriment for true knowledge and liberation? The seven factors of enlightenment. The seven factors of enlightenment, too, have nutriment. They are not without nutriment. What is the nutriment for the seven factors of enlightenment? The four foundations of mindfulness. These, too, have nutriment. They are nourished by good conduct. Good conduct is nourished by restraint, Restraint is nourished by mindfulness and clear comprehension. Mindfulness and clear comprehension is nourished by careful attention, which is nourished by faith, which is nourished by hearing the good Dhamma. Hearing the good Dhamma, I say, has nutriment. It is not without nutriment. What is the nutriment for hearing the good Dhamma? Associating with good persons. And then he goes on. He offers this analogy. Just as when it's raining... The rain pours down in thick droplets on a mountaintop and the water flows down the slopes and fills up the clefts and gullies and creeks and these becoming full fill up the pools and the pools becoming full fill up the lakes. 
these becoming full fill up the streams which fill up the rivers, which fill up the great ocean, and thus there is nutriment for the great ocean. So too, associating with good people becomes fill, becomes full. That filling up fills up hearing the good Dhamma, and so on, all the way up to true knowledge and liberation. So just like the rain on the mountaintops eventually feeds the ocean, spending time with good people is the bedrock of the path. It's what fills up all of the other qualities. And notice he doesn't say, go and find an arhant in the jungle, a fully awakened being. Spend time with good people. People who are wise, who are discerning, who are generous, who have integrity, who have some confidence in the possibility of being a good human being, of waking up. So maybe you're sitting there thinking, yeah, sounds great, but, you know, I don't have that many friends. <laughs> I live in such and such town, and, you know, there aren't any people around who do this practice. So, you know, it's no rain. What do I do? There are many other ways to cultivate good friendship. It doesn't necessarily need to mean strictly the social relationship, or even having the spiritual guidance. One of my first teachers, a man by the name of Manindraji, I spent time with him in India towards the end of his life. We were taking a walk by the river one day, and I asked him, I said, Manindraji, do you ever get lonely? And he smiled, he looked at me, and he said, I am never lonely. The birds are my friends, the trees are my friends, the clouds are my friends. I'm always with my friends wherever I go. So like Mark was talking about last night, the, the wonderful example and nourishment of, of nature. Nature can be a friend. The creatures and the trees and other living beings can nourish that quality in us. So, this quality of good friendship is also about internalizing that sense of connection, that quality, that feeling of being connected. So we've been in silence all week. Most, many of you gave up your phones, or if you didn't give it up, you probably didn't look at it, or at least not that much. <laughs> but let me ask you, in all those hours of silent meditation, have you been alone? And people from your life show up? We take the whole world with us. You know, all of the people, even people who are long gone, they show up in our mind and our heart. So on the physical plane, there's distance in time and space, but in the heart, heart to heart, there's no distance. We carry within us all of the people we've ever known. If we know how to look, if we know how to cultivate that sense of connection. I 
Maybe there are people in your life who you say, okay, take care with the company you keep well, but I'm stuck with these people and they're not the right kind of people. You know? That's when we practice being a good friend. That's when we practice embodying these qualities. When this foundation of friendship becomes how we are in the world. That we can meet others with kindness, regardless of how they respond to us. And then it becomes the little things in our life. You know, smiling to the bus driver. Have a nice day. Saying thank you and really meaning it to someone. Or just in those interactions with the neutral person, the checkout, you know, the grocer at the check the checkout person at the grocery store, or your post your post, the person who delivers your mail. To be able to really see someone. I worked for a nonprofit for a while in, in Berkeley, the Buddhist Peace Fellowship. One of my jobs was going to the central post office and doing the, uh, the, the mailings for fundraising. And uh, if you've ever had to deal with, you know, bulk mailings and the postage rates and the stickers and the way they have to be bundled, it's really complicated. And the woman who worked at this post office did not like her job. And she did not like me and she, did not, she didn't seem to like anyone who came, came through. And I had to go there like, you know, every, you know, two or three times a year, every time we did a mailing. And I was just consistently patient and kind and friendly. How are you doing today? How's everything going? Ah, it's really busy here, isn't it? Wow, God, this is so complicated. I'm so sorry. Oh, thank you for, you know. And after about a year, she started smiling. <laughs> we got along fine. It just took that time, that effort to see her as a human being instead of just as this person that I need to deal with to get the thing done. You know, or ever, the difference when you call a customer service line and you finally get through the phone menu and there's someone on the other line who's just reading a script, right? We can expedite that, but it'll take longer. What? <laughs> Do you hear what you just said, you know? Versus someone who's actually there, you know, who's actually trying to help. So these small ways that we can bring this quality of friendship into our life. Sometimes it means finding someone who's in need. You know, going to a soup kitchen, finding some place to volunteer being involved, engaged with something where we can feel a sense of connection and giving, where we can be that friend, where we can be that person who's stopped, who's just feeling the sun for others by offering a helping hand. I have a good friend who uh, got trained uh, to be a phone operator for a, a crisis hotline. And it's, that's her Donna. That's her volunteer work, you know. So many nights a month, she goes and she volunteers and answers the phone for people who are in distress. So this passage that I started with from the Buddha that many of you have heard before where Ananda says spiritual friendship is half of the holy life and the Buddha says, uh-uh, it's the whole thing, right? So it actually goes on. There's another part to it that often doesn't get read. 
So the Buddha says, you know, when one has a good friend, it's to be expected that they will develop and cultivate the Noble Eightfold Path. And then the Buddha says, by following this method too, Ananda, it may be understood how the entire spiritual life is good friendship, good companionship, good comradeship, by relying on me as a good friend, Ananda. Beings subject to birth are freed from birth. Beings subject to aging are freed from aging. Beings subject to death are freed from death. Those subject to sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are freed. By this method too, Ananda, it may be understood how the entire spiritual path is good friendship. By relying on the Buddha as a good friend. So what does that mean? That's interesting, huh? It's a good one to contemplate. What would it mean to have the Buddha as a good friend? To develop a relationship, perhaps with the sense of this person who lived, who set in motion this wheel of the Dharma that's been turning across continents for millennia to have a relationship with the example of his life. Or that more inner meaning of relying on what the Buddha represents, relying on the qualities of awareness, wakefulness, wisdom, compassion, patience, love. By relying on those qualities is spiritual friendship, the whole path. And this is where the other meaning, this uh, other meaning of the word kalyanamita comes in. So usually it's translated as spiritual friendship, good friends, but there's a play on words in there. The word kalyana means beautiful, auspicious, uplifting, often translated as wise or spiritual. So kalyanamita also means friendship with, with that which is beautiful. Friendship with that which is spiritual and uplifting. So this path is also, it's about friendship, having good friends, the company we keep in our life, but also the company we keep in our mind. What are the forces? What are the mental states we keep around inside? Are we cultivating friendship with the beautiful qualities of the heart? with kindness and compassion, with patience, with generosity, with truthfulness. Associating with those qualities, making that the company we keep. Again, from the Buddha, whatever harm an enemy may do to an enemy or a hater to a hater, far worse is the harm one's own ill-directed mind can do. Neither mother nor father nor any other relative can do one as much good as one's own well-directed mind. So learning to become our own best friend, internalizing this quality of spiritual friendship. a famous poem called The Invitation by Oriah Mountain Dreamer. Some of you are probably familiar with it. 
I won't read the, the whole thing. I'll just read a few lines. But she points to this quality of, or this aspect of what we spend time with in our own mind. The poem begins, It doesn't interest me what you do for a living. I want to know what you ache for. And if you dare to dream of meeting your heart's longing. It doesn't interest me how old you are. I want to know if you will risk looking like a fool for love, for your dream, or for the adventure of being alive. I want to know if you can sit with pain, mine or your own, without moving to hide it or fade it or fix it. I want to know if you can be with joy, mine or my own. I want to know if you can see beauty, even when it's not pretty every day, and if you can source your own life from its presence. Doesn't interest me to know where you live or how much money you have. I want to know if you can get up after the night of grief and despair, weary, bruised to the bone, and do what needs to be done to feed the children. It doesn't interest me where or what or with whom you've studied. I want to know what sustains you from the inside when all else falls away. I want to know if you can be alone with yourself and if you truly like the company you keep in the empty moments. And so I think this is a lot of what we're doing, learning to be our own best friend and learning to be a good friend to one another, developing these qualities so that we truly can enjoy the company we keep, inside and out. So I want to end reading again the Buddha's definition of a good friend. A friend endowed with seven qualities is worth associating with. See if you can hear this in both meanings now, the internal and the external. They give what is hard to give. They do what is hard to do. They endure what is hard to endure. They reveal their secrets to you. They keep your secrets. When misfortunes strike, they don't abandon you. When you're down and out, they don't look down on you. A friend endowed with these seven qualities is worth associating with. So let's just sit together for a moment. for your kind attention. 
So we have time for some walking, and then we'll meet again at 9 o'clock for the last sitting of the day and some chanting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.